Hello, and welcome back to Talking Talmud. I'm one of your hosts here, Dana Osban, here with my friend and Chavruta, Ann Gordon. Our daf today, Masachad Rosh Hashanah, daf Tet Zion, page 16. Well, this was a really nice long daf with a lot of good things on it. So Ann and I, or we're just going to sort of go back and forth, back and forth, um, not comment too much on what each other, one of us has to say, and also recognize that we're not going to get to everything on this really good and meaty daf. So we begin with our second Mishnah of the Masachat. Wait, wait, let's note, that's crazy, right? It's not like we had a whole long Mishnah at the beginning. It was a short Mishnah, and it's taking us to page 16 to get to a ne- the second yeah, one. Yeah, I how- actually would love to go through how long in most Masachets do they wait until they get to the second Mishnah. This one does feel long. Usually I feel like it's Dav Zayin Chet. This was a long one, and we talked about last yesterday, you know, sort of even how we got where they end up and how where the discussion goes is pretty interesting. All right, I'll start the Mishnah again. So the Mishnah now moves on to a different topic, not the Rosh Hashanah, but when they're, when are we judged in the world? There are four times during the year the world is judged. Pesach and Pesach for the wheat, uh, for the uh, grain. And Shavuot concerning the fruits. And Rosh Hashanah, everybody... Every creature passes before God like sheep in Amaron. This is a very famous uh, sort of uh, metaphor that's used all throughout the davening of Rosh Hashanah, particularly in the Tano Tokev, right? Um, right? Like a sheep with his flock, uh, with a shepherd with his flock. So they quote a pasuk from Tehillim, chapter 33, verse 15. He who fashions their heart alike, who considers all their deeds, right? That Hashem knows what all our actions are and looks at everything that we do. Uh, we are judged for water. And so the Gemara now asks, right? So the Mishnah basically wants to know what grain is judged on, on Pesach. Right? If we say that it's grain that's already standing, because we know there's already grain that grew, because we bring the Omer the second day of Pesach, right? So that means there had to be grain already. If you remember, that was a discussion of how quickly the grain grows a few dafim ago. Kohani harpatke dato ala amait idun. Right? So then what judgment is already being passed? The grain already grew. So rather we say it's talking about the grain that will be sown in the coming year. So it's not the grain that you're getting, that Pesach. It's the next crop of grain that you're being judged for. So then the Gemara says, is this to say that only one judgment is passed on a crop? Maybe there's more. And now they're going to bring a brisa. Bahatanya, carry o onus. So let's say you have grain that suffered like some type of incident or an accident before Pesach. In other words, something happened to the grain crop before Pesach and it doesn't grow well. If it happens before Pesach, so then that was judged on the on that that past Pesach. If it happens after Pesach, something to the grain crop, then it was just that that Pesach that just happened. And they say the same thing, that if an individual suffers some type of incident or accident before Yom Kippur, it was judged all the way back in the previous Yom Kippur. In other words, if something happens to that person on Olive Tishrei, right? You know, it, it, that went back all the way to the previous Yom Kippur. But if it happens after Yom Kippur, right, he was judged on that, uh, 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 you know, 
who's judged on that previously. I'm a rabbi, shma minat, trade dine minatne. So Rabbi says, learn from this that there are two judgment periods for each crop. One basically is the period between when it's sown and Pesach. In other words, when it's planted and when, when it's Pesach. And the other one is covering the period of time from Pesach and when it's actually harvested. So in other words, what they're pointing out is, is that it's interesting, this thing about the grain being connected to Pesach, because it happens in the middle of the grain season. It happens in the middle when the grain is growing. So what part is being judged is what they're trying to tease out here. Amar Vai, so Vai says, So therefore, if a person sees that he is slow growing crops, right? In other words, the grain is sown at the beginning of winter, but it ripens only in the spring and summer, and he sees that they're doing well. He should quickly sow fast growing crops. In other words, put in barley, right? Which can be sown at the end of winter and will still grow by Pesach. Right, because before before it's brought to judgment at the next Pesach, it will have grown already. In other words, if you see that your crops are taking their time to grow, you know what might happen? You're going to get to Pesach and the grain hasn't grown, and maybe your judgment for the, that crop is going to change. So what he's saying is quickly throw in barley, which is going to grow quickly, so you'll avoid sort of that second judgment that happens with the grain. So it's interesting that, in other words, they, what they're recognizing here is the time of the grain judgment doesn't really follow a good calendar. It's not like it's sown Pesach time and then gets harvested. It's already part of it is already ready for harvesting by the time you get to Pesach. And so that's what they're trying. Uh, that's what they're trying to figure out here. Then the Gemara goes into who actually wrote this Mishnah and they provide a variety of, uh, they basically provide four Tanaitic opinions about what exactly gets judge. And I just want to point out that they, they then get into this discussion, uh, uh, you know, that maybe, uh, you know, this opinion of Rabbi Huda, which is, which is very famous that you're judged on Rosh Hashanah, but it's sealed on Yom Kippur. And Rabbi Yossi, who says that a person is actually judged every day. And Rabbi Natan, who says that a person is actually judged every hour. So, you know, a, a, some of the things that we see on this particular dot is very familiar uh, from our Rosh Hashanah davening and the liturgy. But I think it's interesting to see how much more there actually is, right? Like, even though we seem to follow the opinion of Rabbi Yehuda with the liturgy, right? It's really taught within a context of three other Tanaitic opinions that hold something different. And again, it's one of those things where it's like, well, how do they really know what it is? So some, some of them, like Rabbi Yossi's opinion has a pasuk attached to it. But it's, it is, you know, some of those things where like Chazal comments on and you're sort of like, okay, I'm not really sure how you actually know this. Really, any of those opinions could be a possibility yeah also there's just so much um well there's so many different opinions on how all of this is going to be manifest i'm i'm going to stick i'm going to try to stick to what you said you're doing at the beginning that we're not going to comment too much and just move right along no no so, no discussion today we're, right, no we're discussion. running it through yeah i'm going to be my own policeman okay uh, as we continued on i'm an aleph there is an additional discussion about this discussion of the omer and the and Pesach, but I want to get to the part after that, right? After that says, So if you're following along, it's getting towards the bottom of the Amud. Right? Why is it that the Torah said, pour out the water on Chag, on Chag meaning Sukkot? God said, 
Because God said, pour out water before me on Chag, the festival, which we understand to be Sukkot. And we offer that libation in order that God will then bless us with the rains of the coming year, which is, you know, in Israel in particular, and this is the way it's designed, there's the dry season and the rainy season. But there has to be rain in the rainy season for that to be, in fact, the, the blessing of rain. And then it's interesting to me that the Gemara kind of backtracks and said, and also, in addition to pouring out that water that will be the libation that will, please God, bring the light, the blessings of rain, also on Rosh Hashanah, which precedes Chag, which precedes Sukkot, um, we should anoint God, recite before God the blessings about kingship and remembrance and shofarot and shofar, which is the Musaf Tfilah of Rosh Hashanah. Um, so it says, well, we understand. We It's very clear why we would have a time, a portion of the tefillah, through which we crown God as king. And it makes sense that we would have a section of remembrances because we want to rem- that God should remember us for good, so we have to remind him of all the good that you know that is to stand us in our own favor as as we come in judgment. And then, but what's going on with the shofar? So the it says bim kedeshi What will bring those remembrances up in the shofar? That the by by virtue of blasting the shofar, we will remind God of everything else in the tefillah and that falls out in remembrance and in malchiot and in kingship. And then the Gemara goes on, Lama tok in shel ayel. Why are we bl- blasting a shofar that comes from an ayel, from a ram? Meaning specifically on Rosh Hashanah. So the statement here is that God says, use an ayel so that I, meaning God, will remember the Akedah, the binding of Isaac. This is, Yerdana, does this count as a Nath Nister that we just read about the Akedah on, on, on Shabbos? Oh, does that count? Because I, I prepped this on Shabbat and I was like, oh, this is our Nath Nister. So thank you for pointing that out. How you okay. That, so you it doesn't have to, it can happen afterwards, not just in advance. Um, the idea being that when God remembers Avram and Yitzchak at the Akedah, then, and we remind him of that with the Tchiat Shofar, we are, it's as if we are binding ourselves in our own kind of personal sacrifice before God. And then, so first of all, that by itself could be like a whole long philosophical discussion. So I want to note that, and I'm going to move on from it, but I want to recognize that this idea that even the use of the shofar as a remembrance for the Akedah, which is then supposed to apply to the current people who blow the shofar, the contemporary people, um, is really a whole long conversation topic. And now the Gemara goes on, meaning first we ask why the shofar of Ayel, but why also why the blowing on, on Rosh Hashanah? Why not some other time? Why specifically? And Lama took in. Why do we make why do we sound a blast of the shofar? There are other ways I imagine that we could remind God of the Akedah. Well, the verse says specifically, blow the shofar, right? That's a verse in Psalms to heal him. Um, verse 
no, chapter 81, verse 4. Ela lamamri'in. So then the question is, not why do you have any tiki'ah, because it says tiku. So then the question is, lamamri'in, why is there a tru'ah? The tru'ah is that staccato, like nine short, fast little blasts. Some people are makbid for nine, some people are not. But why do you even have to ask why we would have this kind of true'ah? Because there's a verse, and that's in the Torah, no less, in Vayikra, that says specifically zichron true'ah. So that's the sound of the short staccato little blast. That should be an obvious thing that we should do with the shofar because it's explicitly stated. It's not explicitly stated. The word true'ah is explicit. The fact that that means staccato blast is not so explicit. So then the Gemara says, okay, really the question that we want to ask is why are we having a tzikiyah, that long, solid blast, and then the tru'ah, the, the bunch of little blasts, when everybody is still in the middle of the amidah. And then, and then do it again when they are standing, first when they're sitting, and then when they're standing. And, then, and this is a whole question over the lit- liturgy itself, right? Why do we have the blast of shofar that are in the middle of the davening that, you know, kind of punctuate the davening. And sometimes, depending on your nusach, it'll even be during a truly silent Shmon Esrei, right? And then again, during the not silent Shmon Esrei. And here we have, again, a mention of a satan, and I've discussed this in the past, why the satan shows up in Rosh Hashanah time, so I'm not going to get into it now. But this claim of, in order to confuse the satan, is that they should... The Satan should be should not know like why this short one, why the long one. What does it mean that Benesha love this mitzvah, right? And then he's going to come and attack. The Satan is going to attack Israel, you know, as a prosecutor, so to speak, against them. And we will be blowing the 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 chauffeur to remind God of our willingness to self sacrifice. All of it ends up being. I think indeed confusing for the Satan. And then Amrabi Yitzchak, Koshana Shain Tokinla Batchilata Mri'in La Basofa. So Rabbi Yitzchak says we're gonna play on the words of Mri'in, right? That you could either talk about talking sounding the true ah that we've just discussed, or Mri'in can really mean something bad happening. Right. So then it says, Koshana, sorry, any any year, Koshana Shain Tokin La Batchila, any year which you don't have the show for sounding. At the beginning, meaning at the Rosh Hashanah, we'll end up with, it says, you'll end up with evil, wickedness, bad, um, by the end of that year. My Tama, Satan. Because if you didn't blow the shofar in this kind of confusing kind of way to confuse the Satan, then you're at risk of the Satan not being confused and therefore being able to accuse the people well and therefore, God judging the people askance because of the Satan's accusations. So better, better, we should make sure that we do all this, um, you know, confusing, short, long, etc., of the blowing of the shofar. It's an interesting, um, I would say it's an interesting discussion in terms of recognizing that bad stuff happens in the world. And it kind of boils it down in rather simplistic terms. And on the other hand, if we want to sit down, which we cannot do right now, and have the very long discussion about this, I think we can understand that some of what's going on here is exactly that frustration of not knowing exactly why why good things happen when they do and when why bad things happen when they do. And as opposed to being simplistic, it's more, I would say, a recognition that things are 
can't don't happen in the most pure simplistic way that we would like them to happen namely good to the good at all times and i'll just make one comment and then read what i want to get to when i'm a bet which is you know we've done a bunch of masakhtot already about holidays and you remember i think one thing we were very struck by particularly with yom and Pesachim, is like it's very factual like it was like this is what you have to do in the beit hamikdash in order to make this holiday count and it's interesting, this Masachet has a much more meta and philosophical feel to it that we did not see in the other Masachet when it came to holiday observance. So I think we're going to continue to see that. Um, it makes sense. Rosh Hashanah is probably our most reflective time of year of all our holidays. But seeing it also, you know, in the pages of Daf Yomi or in the Gemara, as opposed to like Yom Masachim, where you sort of were more struck by, you know, this is so different than how I celebrate the holiday today. Here, there's a consistency with what the text of the Babli is and how we celebrate today and observe today. I'm going to move on then to two other statements of Rabbi Yitzchak, and then, Anne, you're going to like finish up the Rabbi Yitzchak section here, right? But I'm a Rabbi Yitzchak. So this is now a whole series of Rabbi Yitzchak statements that all relate somehow to judgment. So we had the, you know, we... And you mentioned the one that had to do with the shofar and the satan. So here he's saying any year that starts rasha here doesn't mean bad, but more means poor, right? At the beginning, it'll be rich at the end. And he gets this from a pasuk me'rishit shana, um, from Devarim chapter 11, verse 12. Me'rishit um, ketiv, right? It says the word rishit. Um, and what's interesting about the word rishit here is it's missing the letter aleph. So since the, the word is sort of written it can mean poverty, it can mean rashud, it can mean poverty. But ad achrait, right, until the end of the year, that's the second part of the Pasuk, so acharit, right? So it means that at the end of the year, we'll have good things happen. Um, so that's how he gets us from this Pasuk. So if the year starts bad, it's going to end, it, it will end better. And then he goes on to say, So so Rabbi Yitzchak says a man is judged only according to his deeds at that time of his judgment. In other words, we don't, because I think this is one of the essential things. If we say that God sort of, and one of the tensions around Teshuvah, if we say that God knows everything, then theoretically God knows what it is that we're going to do in the future. So Rabbi Yitzchak is saying, no, in a way, when you get judged, you just get judged for now. You don't get judged for maybe what's going to happen in the future. Now, I still don't think that totally solves what that conflict is, but I think we're sort of seeing some of the issues here around free choice and God being all-knowing and Teshuvah in that time in the season. And so this is also, uh, you know, a very famous uh, verse that we actually just read in last, last week's, yesterday, uh, two days ago, uh, chapter 21, verse 17, where it says, God heard the voice of the ladder where he was. In other words, this is when Yishmael gets cast out from Avram's house and God hears Yishmael's voice. God basically saves Yishmael. But the idea is that even though God knows that Yishmael and his descendants may not behave always in the best way, they may behave wickedly, right? That God still Yishmael's prayer is answered and he's saved because at the time he was actually innocent. So I, we could spend a lot of time unpacking this statement of Rabbi Yitzchak. To me, this was one of the more interesting ones because I think it starts to get into a lot of the issues around with this season of Rosh Hashanah, right? God knows what we're all going to do in the future, but yet we're, how are we judged at the same time? Because God ultimately is going to know, were we a good person or were we a bad person? But it seems that we're judged at one particular moment in time itself. 
Yeah, and I think that we keep saying this, right? This is a very philosophical daft, and it's a kind of, I would say, the joining of philosophical, like what's going on on high where God is judging the world and how to experience that down low on, you know, in the human realm, which is one of the most challenging things both to to draw any conclusions about and even to talk about because it can be on the one hand exhilarating and on the other hand sometimes quite painful. So which brings me to the next bit that I want to talk about. There were seven different statements. I counted them in the name of Rabbi Yitzchak. So, you know, the Gemara clearly collated them to put them together. They're all comparable in terms of meaty, thought-provoking discussion topics, and we're not hitting them all. Uh, but this one, I think, is is um, salient to, as I say, like the potential pain that can be in a gzar dinam of in the in the decree against what human beings feel is against our experience. So there are four ways that a person can tear up the decree against them. Elohim, tzedakah, tzedakah, shinui Hashem, vishinui ma'aseh. So these are they, tzedakah, giving charity, tzedakah, crying out in prayer, shinu Hashem, changing one's name and changing one's deeds. Meaning all of this, of course, is for a matter of improvement, right? Tzedakah, how do we know that any of these will work? Tzedakah dechtiv u tzedakah tatzil mimavet. Well, that's pretty explicit. There's a verse in, in Mishle, in Proverbs, that says, charity will save you or deliver you from death. Deliver one. It's not specifically to you. And then in another verse from Psalms this time, um, they cried out to God in the from the narrow straits, and God answered them and delivered them. She knew Hashem, changing one's name. This is a, the this also Yodena, by the way, is a very recent mister, right? That Sarai, that Sarah and Avram, they had their names changed. That Sarah, you should not will no longer have that name Sarai, and her name will be Sarah. And then, and the point being, that's just about her name change. That doesn't tell you anything about changing her fate. Or, or her judgment, I guess, is more accurate than fate. The, the whole discussion of her, of Sarah having a son, only comes after and apparently in conjunction with the name change. Um, sorry, and what about changing your deeds? And this one to me is maybe the most obvious that you you want to change something in your experience, and you feel that perhaps it's done. You know, you did something negative to deserve something negative, so do positive action. But here we've got explicit verses attesting to this. God saw their deeds, and this is now about in the book of Jonah. Yonah, right? Meaning the tshuva that is enacted by the people of Nineveh is is very strong, right? Meaning like they they stop doing the bad stuff and God turns away the evil decree. And Yonah himself is not so pleased with this because he thinks that these are wicked people. And some commentaries say that he understood that in the future these same people were going to oppress B'nai Israel. But it doesn't matter. God saw that they did repentance they did tshuva, and he and he doesn't bring the um, the punishment upon them. And there are those who will add, those who will change their place of residence. And how so? God says to Avram, before the name change, go leave your country, right? Um, and then afterwards, 
the next verse, it says, I will make you a great nation with the implication, perhaps the possibility of inferring that there would not have been the possibility of making Avram a great nation had he stayed in the same place that he was in before Lechacha. Or alternatively, you could say that really this the change of residence isn't all there is to it. There's also the fact that what he did, what Avram did was he got up and then went to the land of Canaan, which is the land of Israel. And then the opinion here, which is the opinion of Rabbi Yitzchak, right? The idea is that it's um, the sanctity or the merit of being in the land of Israel that makes the Shinui, that makes the shift of location make a difference. And that's how he became a great nation, Avram. So as we say, there's a lot to unpack on this daf. Um, and I would say I encourage you to read through it. The fact is this the language here is not so difficult um, to follow. The concepts and the pathos of it are difficult, but not because the terms themselves are. Yeah, and I just think, again, this is what the passage you just read, Anne, is like the source for, you know, one of these very famous things that I think everyone always talks about, like changing somebody's name if they're sick is usually the most common context or sort of the idea of like, she knew him at home, she knew him as well. And here you're seeing sort of the Talmudic, you know, source for that. Well, that's our DAF discussion for the day. Rank us, review us on all major podcasts. Thank you to Reverend Michelle Farber for hosting us on the Hadron web- website. Let us know what you thought about this DAF and our Talking Talmud Facebook page. And until tomorrow, go and learn.